Well, if you want to open up your copy of the scripture to John chapter 6, if you're a guest with us this morning, we've been making our way through the gospel of John. And so here we are, chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. I really would love for you to open up your Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, just Google John 6, 1 through 15, and something will come up. I assume you know how to work Google. Thank you. Uh, But I really do want you to be looking at it for yourself because... um, this scripture, it's our, it's our kingdom constitution. You know, we're from a different world. We're from the age to come. Eternal life has been given to us. And, uh, and so we have our own national anthems. That's, that's the songs that we just sang. Those are our anthems. Uh, we have our founding documents, the word of God. It's our constitution. It's, it's how we know what God wants us to do. And so uh, if God has taken the time to tell us what he wants us to do and tell us how to live, then we should at least take the time to open it up and see for ourselves. And so John chapter 6 We're going to read verses 1 through 15, but before we do, I want you to think about your favorite lunch as a kid. If you had to take your lunch to school, um, what was it that when your mom or your dad packed it for you or you packed it for yourself uh, was the sweet sweet spot? For me, uh, I hate admitting this, uh, it's a bologna and cheese sandwich. Like, I still enjoy those. There's some sentimental attachment to it. I don't need any judgments, by the way, uh, about that. God created all those ingredients. Maybe not for food, but he created all those ingredients that ended up in my bologna and cheese sandwich. But I have a sentimental attachment to it because one summer when I was in elementary school, my parents sent me to baseball camp, so they dropped me off in the morning, played baseball all day, come pick me up in the afternoon, so you had to bring your lunch. But it wasn't the normal lunchbox for that particular week. My mom let me bring a mini cooler, and what was great about it is that's the kind of cooler my dad would take his lunch uh, in. It even had that blue ice thing in it, which you know probably has given us all cancer, but uh, uh, it was in there and my dad had one of those in his lunchbox and and so in those lunches was a bologna and cheese sandwich and and ever since then I've just had this sentimental attachment and I enjoy the taste of a bologna and cheese sandwich and the reason I bring that up is because today's passage is about a little boy's lunch and so his is going to be some fish and some pieces of bread mine's a bologna and cheese sandwich what's your lunch if you were there that day when Jesus took that lunch and fed multitudes of people what ha- would he have been feeding people would it have been bologna and cheese would it have been ham and cheese would it have been a lunchable he would have made the little crackers and the cheese thing uh, multiply right? because that's exactly what happened what's interesting about this story is it is in all four gospels you know Matthew, Mark, Luke and John they all have different reasons for giving a synopsis of Jesus' life. They all have a specific intended audience. When Mark was writing his gospel, he wasn't just writing it to, you know, to blog about it. Uh, he had somebody in mind. He had a group of people that he was thinking about. And that's why there are different stories of Jesus. That's why there are some different details in each one. But this story, the feeding of 5,000 plus people, is in all the gospels, which tells us today that this story is essential in understanding understanding Jesus, that you cannot understand who Jesus was and who he continues to be today without the story of the feeding of 5,000. So let's read in verse one, John chapter six. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. So Jesus is sailing from one side of the sea, uh, this giant lake to the other side. He's going to the, le- the less populated side. Verse 2, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. 
So you can imagine Jesus before he sailed across the Sea of Galilee to the less populated side. He was in the more populated side, probably in a town called Capernaum. That was his home base. And he's doing lots of miracles there. So he's in a home or he's in a synagogue and people are just bringing him all of their sick. Uh, they're, they're bringing their loved ones who have been possessed by demons and Jesus is healing people. He's casting out demons, setting them free from those afflicting spirits. So massive amounts of people are aware that Jesus is a Capernaum and he withdraws. He, he leaves the crowd and he takes his disciples. So in this, this verse, we have two groups of people. We have the crowd and we have the disciples. And they both play different roles inside the Gospels. And let me just give you a little preview. If you've never read all four Gospels, you don't want to be in the crowd. Because Jesus gives himself to the disciples. A great crowd of people followed him, verse 2, because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Now put yourself in Jesus' situation, and I'll put put myself in his situation. Wouldn't we want to maximize our audience? I mean, he has hundreds, if not thousands of people aware that he is healing Uh, healing the sick. You think that he would take advantage of that, but what does he do? He leaves that. And he takes his disciples up on the mountain. I brought a picture of what that mountain might have looked like. Uh, This is on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It's got an Instagram filter on it, of course, but... uh... But we're going to leave it up all morning because as we're reading this story, it took place maybe on this mountain or maybe on one just like it, on the less populated side of the Sea of Galilee, But he goes up on that mountain, not with the crowd, but with his disciples. And I want to ask him myself this morning, and I want you to ask yourself, which am I in? Am I in the crowd? They followed Jesus on a whim. Ah, look at what he can do. He can heal our sick. He can do these wonders. But the disciples followed because of a commitment. Jesus had asked them, will you leave everything that you have And make following me your full-time job. The disciples were students. And not just to learn the information, but then to go and do that same thing. The crowd just came to spectate. So maybe this morning we have both groups represented. We have people who are here on a whim. You woke up this morning and thought, "Eh, I guess I should go. And we have disciples People who say, well, of course I am here. I am committed to being a student of Jesus and being with other students of Jesus in this world. But we're going to see throughout the story that the crowds are consistently around him, but it's the disciples that he gives himself to. Verse 5, verse 4. The Jewish Passover festival was near. Now this is a pretty random verse in the midst of this story. It doesn't have anything to do with the, uh, the story other than John wants us to be thinking about the original Passover as we read the rest of what happens. Um, the original Passover happened in the book of, of Exodus. And that's why it's important to be reading all of the scripture uh, for yourself. We can't just parachute into our favorite verses because we can't really understand Jesus without the context and the history that he came from. And so here in this simple story of feeding of 5,000 people, if you understand what he's saying and why he's saying it and the history behind it, it's so much richer uh, than just reading it on the surface, which is Jesus 
you know, fed 5,000 plus people. I guess that's super cool. He's not here now to do that. So we're going to have to go to Chipotle for lunch, right? I mean, what's the application? But if you understand the original Passover, it helps a lot in helping us know what we should be doing and what God intends for us. Because in the original Passover story, God's people were slaves in Egypt. God rescued them out through signs and wonders. And the last plague that God sent to the Egyptians to let the Israelites go was the angel of death came and killed all of the firstborn except for the Israelites firstborn because they had taken the blood of the, uh, a lamb as God had prescribed and put that blood over their doorpost and the angel knew to pass over that house. And so the Pharaoh lets God's people Israel go. And so they get out into the wilderness outside of uh, Egypt, but they run into a roadblock called the Red Sea. Pharaoh has changed his mind. And so now he's pursuing them with his army. So they're trapped on one side, trapped on the other side. God parts the Red Sea. They walk across on dry land. The Egyptians try to follow them. The water crashes down on them. In Exodus chapter 15, on the other side of the Red Sea, they sing the song of praise. And you would think that it would just be, uh, you know, uh, happy, happy tunes until they get to the promised land. But immediately in chapter 15, after they sing the song of God, you're so awesome that you've saved us, they start complaining. Sound familiar? Because they get out in the wilderness and they're like, oh, there's no grocery stores out here. There's no spigots where I can turn on the water. Where are we going to get water for all of us? And so God miraculously provides water for them. And then in chapter 16, they think, well, we don't have any food. There's no Kroger out here. No H-E-B. No bologna and cheese sandwiches. What are we going to do for food? I I want you to show show you how God responds to that. So turn real quick to Exodus chapter 16. You know, there's an important rule in the scripture. God's miracle yesterday does not mean my faith today. I mean, we, we hope that it does. That's why we're always trying to make deals with God. God, if you'll do this for me, if you will answer my prayer, then I'll be more faithful. Then I'll be more committed. Then I'll be more righteous. But a, a God doing a miracle for us today does not guarantee our faithfulness the next day. And we see that right here because God has miraculously provided water for them at the end of chapter 15. And then in chapter 16, they're grumbling about their food. What are we going to eat out here in the wilderness? Verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. And when the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. So in the evening, God said, Here's what I'm going to do about, the, uh, about your food. The reason this is important to John chapter 6 is because they're getting ready to ask the same question. We're out here. We followed you on the mountainside. What are we going to do about food? So in the Exodus, God's answer was, in the evening, I'm going to fly flocks of quail, try saying that, flocks of quail into the camp and they're just going to die right there at the door of your tent and you just got to bring them in. It's not hunting, but it is gathering. Right? And that was their evening. And in the morning, they would wake up and there would be dew on the ground. But after the dew evaporated, there would be this bread-like substance and they would take it and they would make their bread for the day. Now, the reason that John wants to remind us of all this by telling us that Passover was near is because Jesus is getting ready to answer the question, what are we going to do about food by giving them bread? 
So you have this story in the back of your mind. Now let's go back to John chapter 6. Verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. So the crowds have figured out where he has gone with his disciples. So they're following up him up on top of this mountain. Uh, he sees the crowd coming. He knows what time of day it is. And so he asks Philip, what are we going to do? Now, the reason he asked Philip is because we know from earlier in the gospel that Philip is from Bethsaida, which was right around where they were at at this moment. And so it would be like if we all went to your hometown and we said, hey, what's good to eat? That's what he's saying to Philip. I'm putting on you the responsibility of feeding all these people because we happen to be near your hometown. And Philip answered him, verse 7, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? So you have two disciples doing math. Uh, I, I wanted to be a pastor or a minister uh, when, by the time I went to college, and so that's what I started studying uh, once I got to college. But I transferred a few times, four times in five semesters. That's a record, by the way. I'm in the Guinness Book. Um, I transferred the last time for love, so love covers over a multitude of transfers. That's in the Bible. <laughs> When I got down here to Houston, because that's where my wife Amanda is from, and uh, I had to double major. This university, uh, one major was not enough, and so it was, I was going to do a Christianity degree, uh, and then I, I just randomly picked economics. I don't know why I picked e economics, because, but because I'm ignorant, and uh, it turns out economics is nothing but math. Not a huge fan of math, so you can imagine how fun my last two years of college were. Made great grades on the Christianity stuff, so you're in good hands today. Not as good if you need me to balance your checkbook later on. But what I learned in economics is everything is math. Underneath everything in this world is a math equation. And we see Philip and Andrew doing math. Philip's math is 5,000 plus people, zero food, zero money. Andrew's math is pretty similar. 5,000 plus people, zero food, zero money, but Jesus is on the mountain. And you can see their responses are different because their math is different. Philip said, half a year's wage won't even feed all these people. At best, people are just going to get a bite to eat. Andrew's math leads him to do something crazy. He goes and gets a bologna sandwich and he brings that to Jesus. Now it says that the young man has uh, barley uh, bread, which historians tell us was the least tasting, worst, cheapest bread that you could put in a lunch. And then it says that he has some fish with him. Now the other gospels, the, the, the Greek word that they use for fish is ichthus. Some of you have an ichthus tattoo. That's where it comes from. It just means fish in the way that I'm saying it right here. But we also know that there are particular kinds of fish. And John uses a Greek word. Of course, we can't see all this in English. Uh, that is a small fish. It would be like what we would call a minnow or a sardine, something small. Essentially, this little boy probably packed his own lunch. He got the cheapest bread he could find and he threw in some fish type relish. Doesn't that sound good? Uh, and flavored his bread with it. Right? It's not some big mahi mahi or tuna, uh, you know, big tuna that we see on the Discovery Channel. I mean, it's, it's real tiny. But because Andrew's math is different, he thinks, well, I should give this a shot. 
he's, he's honest about it. I don't know if it is going to work or that's what you're looking for. It seems like it's not going to work in the face of all these people. But this is what I found. Yeah. Underneath your faith is math. All of us are going to be hit with the C word at some point in our life, either ourselves or someone we love. And it's going to be cancer plus chemo plus this plus that. That is an equation. And we get the choice to be like Philip or Andrew and just remember Jesus is on the side of the mountain. Now, I do want to say this. It doesn't mean that the outcome may be different. The outcome might be the same, but the process of getting to the outcome will be a lot different. Philip's response and Andrew's response on the surface aren't that different. But there was a reason that Andrew thought, even though this little offering doesn't make any sense, with Jesus on this mountain, who knows what might happen. Verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. So this could be up to 10,000 people if you include women and children. And Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. Remember, Philip, uh, his best case scenario was people might get a bite to eat. But through Jesus, everybody had more than enough to eat. And he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. And this is verse 12. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Now, how many disciples were there? Twelve. Uh, for bonus, how many tribes of Israel were there? Twelve. So it's total coincidence that there are twelve baskets left over. No, of course. Jesus is testing Philip. I mean, he's, he's talking about himself. This isn't just a meal. These people would have survived uh, going without food for a, a few days. There's a reason that all four gospel writers included this story in there because it helps us understand something about Jesus. And those 12 baskets left over help them help us understand something about him. Because remember, back in the wilderness, when God had provided them manna, like I told you earlier, the miracle that day didn't guarantee their faithfulness the next day. Because pretty soon after the manna uh, miracle, they would start complaining about water again. And then after that, they started complaining that there wasn't enough variety in their diet. They weren't getting enough fruits and vegetables. They would find any reason to complain to God, even though he was doing this miracle for them every day. So the disciples, they know that story. What they don't know is not too long after Jesus feeds the 5,000, he's going to offer up his life on a cross. He's going to be buried. He's going to pick back up his life, the Gospel of John will tell us, and then he's going to ascend into heaven. And before he does that, he's going to put his mission, his ministry, into the hands of these 12 disciples. And then they're going to spread out throughout the whole world. And when they get out there in the world, you know what they're going to find? Persecution, suffering, jail, hunger, loss. But they'll always be able to go back to one basket that literally had their name on it. 
when they're sitting in a prison in Rome, they'll do math. A Roman prison, chains around my ankles, totally abandoned and forgotten. But Jesus is in this jail cell. So there is more than enough for me here. Verse 14. And after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Now look at verse 14 when it says, Surely this is a prophet. My Bible has a capital P. Look at your Bible right now. Raise your hand if it has a capital P for prophet. Yeah, I think most of our translations do because... The people aren't just saying that he is prophetic or he is just filling this vague role. It's a capital P because thousands of years before, God gave a prophecy to Moses, the greatest leader of Israel's history, and said, one day I'm going to bring them a new Moses, a person like you, a great prophet from among them. And so over time, they didn't just talk about that prophet in general. They gave that prophet a capital P. And now these people are saying up on that mountain after they have seen him multiply all this food, this is the prophet with a capital P. And then they intend to take another step and make him king. Uh, and, and not just a general king, but they believe that he is the Messiah, that God has prophesied through Amos and Obadiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah and all of Jeremiah. All of those prophets pointed to the Messiah. And they're saying, this is the Messiah. He's the prophet and the Messiah. But it says that Jesus withdrew from them. He didn't embrace it. Now, here's what's interesting. They were right. Jesus was the prophet with a capital P. And he was the king, the Messiah. They had the right titles, wrong understanding. When we went to visit my folks in Missouri last month, there's a billboard in Oklahoma because people from Oklahoma are really righteous. And it, it, it said just real big, Jesus is Lord. And so I've been thinking about that billboard. And that billboard is right. But it's not enough to just have the right title. Do I understand what that title means? So let's just talk about it today. I'm guessing most of us, if even in a vague sense, might say, yes, Jesus is Lord. But is he Lord? Do we understand what that means? Just think about your worst nightmare assignment God could give you right now. Take everything you own. Sell it. Put that money in a bank account for later. No. Give it to the poor. Come follow me to Pakistan. Every day I get an a, a update through an app of, a, a, of people groups around the world. Little tribes, languages, nations uh, that don't have access to the gospel. I would say right now 70% of them are in Pakistan. And God singles you out to go. How you feel right now, thinking that that might be you, is a test to you and to me, because I didn't buy a plane ticket yet, if I understand what Lord means. So gut check by you City Fellowship. 
Nigeria, Congo, Indonesia, Malaysia. Because Lord means whatever you say, I do. I say yes first and you fill in the blanks later. Jesus is showing us that a title alone is not enough. They believed that he was prophet with a capital P and king with a capital K, but they didn't understand and Jesus withdrew from them. And here's the scary thing. Jesus promised us as his people, as brothers and sisters of God's family, that wherever we gather, just two of us, two of us or more, he would be with us by his spirit, which he's left us. He is here. And so, man, what great news today that we're just going to come to church, but God The Son is here with us. But what if we've not gathered in His name? What if because we didn't understand who He was, all those titles that we throw around in songs and in sayings and on bumper stickers and t-shirts, right? What if we didn't understand? And so, uh, unfortunately, accidentally, we just gathered in the name of Bayou City Fellowship today. Man, what a waste. Are we gathered in the name of the worst country club ever? Are we gathered in the name of being good people, kind-hearted in this world? Are we gathered in the name of just being connected because I'm lonely? Then God the Son, Jesus the Lord, looked down on them and said, I can't be with them today because they're not gathered in my name. They have the right title, but they don't understand, so he withdraws. He takes those who do understand, the disciples, and he leaves them. Because that crowd, they had shallow faith. The disciples, they had faith of substance. There was a depth there. And you understand the difference between shallow faith and and real uh, abiding faith. Uh, I've taken my kids ziplining before. And and the first time we did it was in Missouri. It wasn't a a super fancy place. And the, the... the zips, I don't know what you call those, the, the cords, the metal things, uh, they were not that high off the ground. So, I'm, you know, I'm putting my kids on these and I'm calculating the risk. Worst case scenario, broken arm. So, hey, yeah, go for it. Last summer, we went zip lining in Canada. The Canadians know how to do zip lining. So they grow these trees that are just a mile tall and they make sure that the zip starts at the very top. And so when we got to the zip lining place and you're seeing, I mean, you know, best case scenario is broken arm if you fall. Worst case scenario is eternal life. I mean, that's, that's the way it goes. <laughs> and so, you know, watching these strangers do it and you're like, oh yeah, that's, I, bet it's, I bet it's real safe. I bet it's fine. The harnesses are secure. It was another step of faith to put myself out there but the, the, the real faith was when I put my kids out there and my wife out there. That's when I really had to believe that this thing was safe. There's a difference between shallow faith and faith of substance. There's a kind of faith that gets you to church on time or 10 minutes late and, uh, you know, Instagram verse and, you know, that's that kind of faith. And there's a faith of a disciple who says Jesus is Lord and whatever he says I do. How do I know if I have that shallow faith? What we see from the people on the mountain, we see from the Israelites when they receive their miraculous bread. Shallow faith is completely tied to fear. When fear is high, faith is low. When fear is low, faith is high. 
When everything is good, bank account good, health good, job good, relationships good, God is good. When you lose your job, when the economy crashes, when you don't have answers, when the doctor calls you and says, why don't you come in? Or calls your mom and says, I need to see you again. God, why would you do this to us? Where are you? But a faith of substance just says, God, I trust you, even though I maybe don't understand. But I believe that you are in the equation. A shallow faith revolves around what's best for me. What was best for those people is for Jesus to just keep giving them miraculous bread. They'd follow him anywhere as long as he was giving them bread. But in in just a few verses, he's going to tell them, I am the bread. And if you want to be one of my disciples, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And guess what? Lots of people exited the freeway at that point. That's John 6, 6, 6. Isn't that crazy? It's a weird coincidence. Many of his disciples decided to not follow him anymore when he said that. Because they were in it for what was best for them. And a shallow faith is built on experiences and not on a person. It's the difference between the disciples and then the disciples had committed themselves to following Jesus. And that crowd had committed themselves to following bread. So when the bread disappeared, they disappeared. So the question for me today, and I totally understand the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians when he says, not that I've apprehended all this. Not that I've attained it. Not that I've figured it out. So the question for me today is, am I a disciple or am I just in the crowd? Am I in this for Jesus or am I in this for bread? I know where I'd like to be and I know where I am. So let's pray. God, would you make up the distance from where we are to where we'd like to be? Would you encourage us as disciples today? Would you give us a vision for what it means to be Lord? God, thank you that you tie supernatural joy into obeying. Thank you that you've called us not to a life of frowny faces, but to vibrant living in obedience to our Lord. But help us to see that and taste that now. In Jesus' name, amen.